Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's episode, we take a look at the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Authors Paul Anderson and Kevin Davey join me to discuss their book, Moscow Gold, which looks at the relationship between the Soviet Union and the British left. Comrades, I hope you enjoy. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Paul and Kevin, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Hi there. Hi. Guys, it'd be great for the benefit of our listeners for you to both just tell us a bit about yourselves. Paul, we'll start with you. Hello, well, and thanks for having us. Uh, um, Well, I'm a a journalist and an academic. Um, I've spent... 30 years of my life working as uh, a journo on various lefty publications. I was editor of the uh, weekly Tribune in the early 90s and deputy editor of the New Statesman after that. And I've been teaching journalism and history at various uh, universities since the late 1990s, as well as freelancing, writing books and working as a sub-editor on The Guardian. Kevin, can you also just tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I have a rather different profile. I'm a consultant to businesses in Shoreditch, and I work with social enterprises all over the southeast of England. But um, if you go back to the 70s and the 80s, I was a an activist and a a writer on the left. In the 80s, I became uh, much more involved in running organisations, the Socialist Society, the Socialist Conference. I helped set up Charter 88. I worked alongside very closely many of the people who are now in the leadership of the Labour Party. And subsequently, I've gone on to to write uh, about the left. And uh, one of the most recent books is Moscow Gold, which we've written about the history of Soviet involvement in the Labour Party in Britain. Thank you for that. We're close to the 100th anniversary of the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution that led to the creation of the Soviet Union. A hundred years on, we can now see that the legacy of the Bolshevik Revolution went on to shape the political landscape of the 20th century and arguably set the stage for the geopolitical events of the 21st century. On today's show, we're going to focus on the relationship between the Soviet Union and the British left. Before we begin, I think it'd be a good idea to get a quick guide to certain key terms which frequently get confused with each other or get equated with each other as a point of criticism. Paul, can you just tell us what is communism, what is socialism, what is liberalism, and does being on the left automatically mean that you're a communist? (laughs) Well, uh, I think that's rather a big question. And, uh, well, actually, I think you'd get as many different answers as there are uh, people who uh, describe themselves as socialists, communists and uh, liberals. And, uh, well, it's also, to complicate matters, different in different times and different places. For what it's worth, for me, socialism is essentially a belief in egalitarianism and extension of democratic control to uh, as much of everyday life as we can uh, extend it to. 
um, communism is a commitment to state control of just about everything under a totalitarian dictatorship, and liberalism is a matter of tolerance and acceptance of rights and rules of democratic procedure. Um, but um, uh, there are plenty of socialists who would say that my definition is far too woolly, and there are communists who abhor everything about the official communisms of the Soviet Union and China. And, well, just to complicate things even more, what it means to be a liberal is completely different in the US and Europe. Liberals in the US are all in favour of what I'd call social democratic amelioration of the ills of capitalism. Um, But uh, continental European liberals are mad for the free market and uh, not much else. So, well, okay, and British liberals are somewhere in between. So, okay, I'm not not answering the question, just saying it's a bit complicated. I mean, I've collaborated with Paul for more than 30 years now and I always find it amazing that we still disagree on just about everything Mm -hmm. which is great and I I think Paul's definition of communism is the uh, um, definition of communism as it turned out to be. I think I'll be a little more generous and say that it's the aspiration too. It's an aspirational classless society. Unlike Paul I think that the aspiration involves no state I think it involves a withering away of the state, the famous phrase. I think the aspiration involves material sufficiency for all. It even, in many cases, uh, is, is a vision of a moneyless society. But I do think that that aspirational notion of communism is a direction of travel which has actually brought about its opposite for most of the parties that have set out in that direction. Um, And I agree that totalitarianism and dictatorship have often been the result of setting out on the journey towards that aspiration. On, On socialism, I think we probably have a very similar view, which is that Uh, I I think very much socialism is about state direction of the uh, economy, of much of industry, of utilities and services. But it's also about popular control of the state, um, a form of social organisation for the many, not the few, to use a, a contemporary phrase. On liberalism, I think it's a very stretchy term. I think it's a mix of political democracy um, and different levels of regulation of a mixed economy with lots of options and diverse structures possible within it, but probably no major shifts of power or resources envisaged by by liberals. Um, So our working definitions are similar but not the same. I would now like us to go back in time to 1917 at the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution. Paul and Kevin, can you just talk us through what was going on in the world and Russia during that time and how the Bolshevik Revolution came to be? <laughs> well, uh, rather a lot was happening in uh, uh, 1917. Um <laughs> Uh, The Bolshevik Revolution wouldn't have happened, I think it's fair to say, had it not been for the First World War, uh, which was catastrophic for Russia. Um, Russia won initial victories against Germany and against Austria-Hungary with its massive conscript uh, army and then lost battle after battle. I'm simplifying uh, uh, the story. Um, But by the end of 1916, early 1917, uh, the morale of its army had collapsed. Um, the Tsarist regime had 
had lost all credibility uh, with its people at the front and at home. And it surrendered power in February 1917, the first uh, Russian Revolution of 1917, um, after not much more than a couple of demonstrations in the uh, streets of uh, Petrograd. We're not talking about um, an insurrection, classical proportions. Um, and, well, OK, the Bolshevik Revolution, nine months later, was uh, a different uh, kettle of fish. It was an opportunist coup. Uh, the Bolsheviks had support among the workers for promising peace and food, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't a mass movement. Uh, Lenin and his comrades seized the moment and did so very, very effectively. What was the initial British political reaction to the Russian Revolution? And did attitudes change in the months after the fact? I think that the fall of the Tsar was welcomed by just about everybody at governing level. The leaderships of the Conservatives, the Liberals and the Labour Party, we're talking Bonalore, Lloyd George... Arthur Henderson, all welcomed the, the toppling of that regime. But at the same time, they also wanted Russia to continue in the war. Um, within a year, Russia was out. So their attitude certainly did change at that point. The left who opposed the war were, were thrilled by the news from Russia. Um, these were organisations like the Uni Union for Democratic Control, uh, which stood for peace and no annexations, the mostly pacifist independent Labour Party, the British Socialist Party, uh, Sylvia Pankhurst's workers' suffrage movement. These were all very optimistic at the news, limited as it was, that was coming across from Russia. And uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution, these are groups that went on to rally at the Albert Hall and get involved in the Leeds Convention and uh, generally try and develop a, a partner for the Bolsheviks in the United Kingdom. Um, I suppose the significant impact that we point out in Moscow Gold is that Arthur Henderson visits Russia in the summer of 1917 and he comes back much more sympathetic to the notion of a peace conference of the, the warring powers and in fact drives Labour policy towards uh, the idea that once this war is over, uh, uh, that will be the end of war. There will be no more and the League of Nations will be the, the vehicle to deliver that. Um, but at the same time, Henderson had also seen the disorganisation and maladministration mal and chaos in Russia in this period. And he led a simultaneous push, really, to create a, an electorally focused Labour Party uh, with individual membership uh, that was focused on, on parliament, on town halls and local authorities and was not in insurgent and revolutionary. So uh, again there was a political reaction to the, the Russian Revolution which was to say that's not the path that uh, Labour will be taking in Britain. Um, I suppose it would be fair to say that nobody actually expected uh, the Bolshevik revolution of the autumn to last. Um, and as the Bolsheviks went on to negotiate a separate peace at Brest-Litovsk, uh, allowing Germany to begin to move troops westward, uh, that came as an enormous shock to public opinion and the uh, British establishment. The Bolsheviks turned out not 
to be allies, um, and public opinion swung against them. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Paul? I, I suppose the, the well, the only thing really is uh, uh, to say that uh, uh, what's most extraordinary uh, about the British take on uh, what was happening in uh, Russia in 1917-1918, so after the uh, uh, Bolshevik uh, um, uh, coup d'etat, the Bolshevik revolution, uh, was just how little um, was known. Um, uh, the best coverage um, was actually uh, written by one Arthur Ransom, who uh, 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 listeners might have uh, heard of because of, uh, well, Swallows and Amazons and his uh, uh, later um, uh, children's books. But he was uh, then the Petrograd uh, correspondent of the uh, Daily News and uh, was in London in late 1917 uh, um, uh, to have, uh, well, basically uh, uh, an operation because he was ill. Um, and his coverage from London was better than anything that appeared from uh, the uh, 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 the front line, so to speak. It wasn't really until early 1918 that anything like an accurate picture of what had happened in Russia was formed by anyone in the UK. And then from mid-1918, we're looking at uh, British intervention to suppress the Bolshevik Revolution, which meant that uh, nothing came out because of censorship. So, um, well, ignorance um, was uh, the norm. 1918 to 1920, Britain was in a state of undeclared war with the Bolshevik regime. Can you tell us a bit about that time? Well, the uh, British intervention against the Bolsheviks has been written about a, a, a lot, and uh, it was undoubtedly a massive issue in domestic politics at the time. But actually, it didn't really amount to much. The uh, the Brits sent a force to northern Russia, Murmansk and Arkhangelsk, early on in uh, 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 1918, but they basically spent most of their time doing nothing, um, freezing in defensive positions and complaining about uh, 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 their circumstances. Um, there was some ineffectual gunboat diplomacy and uh, a little bit of daring do in uh, the Baltic, um, there was a farcical attempt to invade Siberia um, uh, in league with the uh, uh, Japanese in which, uh, uh, and the Americans, in which the uh, uh, Brit uh, uh, garrison of Hong Kong, um, uh, all soldiers uh, over the age of 40 and rather small in number, uh, well, they played a minor um, but nevertheless a, a leading role for a, a, a few months. And in the deep south, of uh, Russia, the RAF few, uh, flew uh, um, a few sorties uh, in surplus sop with camels uh, in support of the counter-revolutionaries. Um, rather more honourably, the Brits protected um, the uh, independent socialist Republic of Georgia uh, for a while, uh, but gave that up and uh, let, uh, well, uh, um, the Bolsheviks uh, invade and take it over. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, to cut long story short, no one in the UK really had any heart for intervention against the Bolsheviks after the end of the war in Western Europe in late 1918, apart from Winston Churchill. Um, and, uh, well, um, uh, against uh, the uh, intervention, there was a massive uh, uh, campaign uh, calling for hands-off Russia, uh, which was led by the uh, 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 trade unions, who were motivated more by war weariness than uh, sympathy for um, the new uh, 
Soviet regime. Um, but uh, anyway, communists and anti-communists have made a big uh, um, uh, deal of uh, uh, the hands-off Russia uh, moment. Um, I'm afraid I don't think it's too important. Uh, uh, it didn't leave a great uh, uh, lasting uh, impact. In 1920, the Communist Party of Great Britain was founded. On the eve of its birth, Vladimir Lenin declared, Communists should demand an electoral pact with Labour, only so that they could expose Labour politicians as class traitors. So maybe not the best start. Can you tell us about the forming of the Communist Party of Great Britain and how it was received? Well, I think one of the first things that the supporters of the Bolsheviks in Britain do, apart from holding uh, welcoming conventions and celebrations, is that they, they tap the new regime for cash quite a lot, in fact, the, the equivalent to a couple of million pounds today. And that money in the form of gold and jewels starts to arrive in Britain in the summer of 1920. People like Rothstein and Pankhurst are instrumental in bringing the wealth in. And in fact, that, that kind of Moscow Gold, uh, the the generous expense account from 1920-21 onwards, uh, was still coming through as pocket money for the party in 1979 when when Paul and I were were students. So it was the beginning of of quite a lot of leveraged support uh, in in the UK from that period onwards. But the the Unity Conventions were were optimistic uh, events held by the the Bolshevik inclined left in, in London and, and in the, uh, the north. Um, but everybody that joined in the formation of the, the Communist Party of Great Britain had to agree quite a, an onerous 21 political conditions to uh, become part of the, the new party, um, uh, part of the Third International, its, its kind of outpost in the United kingdom and this involved them committing to to break with reformism to break with the practices of the uh, the labor party and its parliamentary orientation to to challenge and break with the normal trade union uh, approaches to negotiations with capital uh, it required uh, new supporters to uh, conform to the notion and to develop the practice of the dictatorship of the proletariat and Overall, uh, arching over all of these commitments, um, the local party had to submit to the, the interests and decisions of the international. Um, the independent Labour Party at the time uh, considered its options but, but decided not to bend its knee to, to these terms. Um, and uh, the Labour Party itself, of, of course, was rather appalled at what was going on. The new party's attitude to the Labour Party was very much that of of Lenin's. The Labour Party was uh, an imperialist party that had supported the war and was was part of the problem facing communists. But the party was born nonetheless uh, in 1921 and it was a, a micro party. Uh, it was a, a collection of fragments that didn't fit together particularly well for a number of years. It included the, the British Socialist Party, the Socialist Labour Party, supporters of the Daily Herald, Welsh miners, Clydeside engineers and shipbuilders. Um, and for a little while, uh, Pankhurst's workers' suffrage movement. Um, and uh, together they spent the money on 
property. They, they bought the King Street office, uh, professional organisers across the country, uh, and, a, and a newspaper, the, the Communist. Um, and the ILP remained in the Communist Party's sights as a, a possible acquisition. Um, but as, as Paul indicated, uh, after Kronstadt, after the attack on the soldiers and sailors rising in, in Kronstadt, and after the invasion of the Menshevik Republic in Georgia, uh, most of the ILP turned their backs on the Communist Party and, and its approaches permanently. So the early Communist Party uh, split the left. Uh, it was also highly polarised against the fast-growing Labour Party. And all in all, I, I think uh, uh, that's rather a bad start for for the party, unless you think a, a scrap and a long-term confrontation with the bulk of the British left and its Labour movement uh, is is a way forward. It, it's quite difficult to think of the first five years of the Communist Party of Great Britain, uh, except in terms of farce. Um, it had <laughs> oodles of cash. Um, it had fashionable, uh, fashionable supporters. Um, 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 it had premises in the centre of uh, London's media quarter, and it achieved precisely nothing. <laughs> I, th I think one thing worth pointing out is that the the British Labour movement and the uh, the um, the new Bolsheviks um, assembling in Britain are chalk and cheese. I mean, the 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 political perspectives of the Third International and the uh, struggle for a dictatorship of the proletariat and the uh, emerging parliamentary politics still very much engaged with the social unrest and strikes of the period are, are, are extremely different. But the Communist Party keeps asking to affiliate. Um, you know, the chalk of Labour knew that uh, the that Labour and, and Bolshevism were incompatible and, and it kept saying no, but the Communist Party didn't stop asking to be part of the Labour Party for decades. In 1923, Labour formed a minority government. That government fell apart after a vote of no confidence was passed against the then Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald. The reason why there was a vote of no confidence was he refused to hold an inquiry into why the government chose to recognise the Soviet Union politically as their first foreign act when they came into government, which is obviously quite controversial at that time. Then four days before the 1924 election, Britain experienced its first Red Scare when the then Daily Mail published an explosive letter called the Zinoviev Letter. Paul, can you tell us about this time? Uh, the first thing uh, um, that's crucially important is that the Zinoviev letter uh, was a fake. Um, it was purportedly uh, a missive from the head of the Communist International, the Third International, the International uh, Communist uh, um, uh, Organization. Um, uh, Grigory uh, Zinoviev uh, was its um, uh, uh, chief. Um, but in fact, it was fabricated. Um, it was uh, a fake news operation uh, uh, set up almost certainly by uh, white Russian um, uh, opponents of the uh, Bolsheviks. Um, and, well, the story of how it was used um, uh, in the UK is really quite extraordinary. Um, it was essentially uh, a call to arms um, for uh, uh, communists to overthrow the uh, British state. 
Um, and even though it was uh, a fake, the security services, the Daily Mail and the Tory party uh, spun it as definitive proof um, that Ramsay MacDonald, the leader of the Labour Party and, of course, Prime Minister uh, in 1924, was a Soviet stooge. Um, which, well, actually, even if the thing had been genuine, it wouldn't have proved that, but uh, that's uh, uh, another matter. I don't think uh, it lost Labour the 1924 election in itself, uh, but Labour's openness to trade and diplomatic relations with Moscow, um, and it, you know, it, it was very definitely uh, uh, um, open to uh, uh, both, made it vulnerable to Red Scare tactics uh, from its opponents. And frankly, Labour didn't really help itself very much um, uh, during the uh, uh, 1920s. Um, can you just tell us a bit about who the White Russians are and was the letter known to be a fake at the time? White is white uh, rather than red and, uh, and nothing to do with Belarus, so, um, um, uh, which is white Russia. Um, the whites were the anti-Bolshevik uh, uh, counter-revolutionaries, if you like, who um, mounted, um, uh, well, an armed rebellion against the Bolshevik uh, uh, regime um, and uh, uh, the civil war that resulted um, was probably the bloodiest conflict in terms of uh, deaths per capita of the uh, 20th century. I'm, I, I could be wrong about that, but um, 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 the number of deaths from, from military action and starvation was absolutely extraordinary. Essentially, um, um, well, they lost. Um, um, the uh, Bolsheviks won by 1920-21. Um, they went into exile, but they didn't stop plotting against the Bolshevik uh, uh, regime and the uh, Zinoviev letter is essentially uh, a piece of black propaganda from the whites, if you know what I mean. Um, and, OK, it was denounced as a fake um, at the time by everybody uh, on the left and in the uh, Labour Party, um, but no-one could be quite sure, because it was actually quite a good fake. Um, what Zinoviev had actually said uh, in missives to the Communist Party of Great Britain had been not far from uh, calls to insurrection against um, 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 Her Majesty's, or sorry, His Majesty's uh, uh, um, government, as uh, uh, then was. It was plausible, um, uh, but it was the way it was spun rather than the actual content of the uh, letter. <coughs> that was uh, 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 crucially uh, uh, important. Let's move on to the 1920s. 1927 saw the 10th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. A delegation of British and international politicians visited Russia, and many were amazed by what they saw. These politicians came back praising Russia, seeing signs of the Soviet Union settling down under the leadership of Joseph Stalin. In that year also, the Communist Party changed track with a more aggressive line against the Social Democratic Parties and reformist trade unions in the UK. Later in 1929, we had the Wall Street crash, which led to mass unemployment both in the US and the UK. Can you talk us through how the events of 1927 and 1929 shaped the Communist Party in the UK? Well, Stalin was in control by 1927, and the, the big new project, the big new 
push to build the third international was something that was called the the third period, uh, a period of class against class clarity uh, in the labour movements wherever the Communist Party was active, and this really meant that a turn against reformism uh, was was uh, ordered in in Western Europe and in Britain. Of course, that meant a a uh, a severe critique and campaign of opposition to the British Labour Party and indeed to uh, the the organised trade unions. Um, this was of course made uh, a lot easier in, in Britain because the uh, Labour Party and the TUC had both led uh, the movement to a very significant defeat in the, the general strike of 1926 and the argument of the third period communists was that Labour was giving false hope hope to uh, reform reforms and reformism uh, amongst the the uh, the working class and they took steps to set up uh, separate revolutionary trade unions the national minority movement and to challenge the Labour Party wherever it could in in Britain, Pollitt argued at public <laughs> meetings, down with conservatism, with liberalism, and with laborism. Um, of course, one of the the beneficiaries from this international uh, turn was the uh, the fascist movement, uh, uh, active and in a position of power in Italy, uh, becoming stronger in Germany at this time and. I think that it's an indication really of uh, the fact that the uh, Communist International never really understood fascism um, and, and perhaps never has done. Uh, it saw fascism as the, the last gasp of capitalism, uh, a sign that it was time for the final push by the uh, revolutionary working class. But in fact, you know, fascism was a mass movement. Um, it was a mass movement that continued after the the defeats of the post-war period and the 20s and uh, in Italy and in Germany it grew while the communists attacked the the centre-left, the reformist left, the, the social democratic parties across Europe and their argument was very much that if, if uh, capitalism was on its last legs, the uh, last partners they needed at a moment like that was people that were not committed to end it. Um, uh, and so instead of the, the wide partnership needed to resist the, de the uh, development of fascism, what we had was a, a fractured left. And uh, as we know, um, fascism comes to be very dominant in Italy, in Germany, in Spain, and, and later on to uh, threaten uh, Britain and the rest of Europe. It was a, a, a huge shot in the foot. It was a, an act of real self-harm. Uh, it did nothing to resist the rise of fascism. And by the summer of 1930, there were only about two and a half thousand members in the Communist Party of Great Britain. In other words, fewer than, than when it started <laughs> nearly 10 years before. And uh, one of the consequences is that Labour, by the early 1930s, is uh, not cooperating with the Communist Party, turning down those knocks on the door for affiliation, which continue, and trade unions are prescribing communists from from office in in their ranks. So, um, 1927 uh, was 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 an act of self harm that clearly weakened the party. But then we had the Wall Street crash in. 1929 and uh, this really punctured Western 
capitalism ruptured the global economy uh, massively and uh, of course at this point Stalin's planned economy and the growth that it was reporting uh, began to look quite attractive to uh, people in, in labour circles and beyond. It looked particularly good to the starry-eyed visitors that uh, went across in the 1930s for whom a very good show was put on with the uh, the model villages and the, the endless feasts of statistics, um, the webs, uh, Shaw, Pritt, Labour delegations, trades councils, all go over and believe that they've, they've seen a vision of a, a planned socialist future. And this, of course, does help to reposition and place the party in quite a positive light, but really by no merit of its own at all, uh, the Communist Party of Great Britain is associated with what appears to be a, a better way, a, a better economic future that's opening up in the East. The 1930s were a highly eventful time for the Communist Party in the UK and across the world. We had the rise of fascism in Europe and Imperial Japan in the East. We also had the Spanish Civil War in 1936, in which thousands of volunteers formed international brigades against the fascists. But despite the rise in popularity of communism in 1932, two journalists reported back that the Soviet Union was using forced labour, which had led to the deaths of millions of people. This was in stark contrast to the earlier positive reports in 1927. Yet these reports fell on deaf ears and in many cases were covered up. Can you tell us about this complex time and why people chose to turn a blind eye to the reports of exploitation and mass deaths in the Soviet Union? This is a hard one. Um, I've been wondering about this for a rather, rather long time. Um, part of the story, it seems to me, um, or rather um, uh, uh, the... Uh, the non-story, it's uh, uh, non-reporting of uh, the Ukrainian famine uh, in uh, the early 1930s. Um, part of the story is that uh, Western correspondents in Moscow preferred to keep their contacts in the party state apparatus suite uh, rather than tell the truth that they all knew. Um, and, uh, uh, well, OK, they told the same lies um, that they were writing in their reports to official uh, visitors. Um, everything in the garden uh, was uh, uh, rosy. Um, but it wasn't quite as simple as that. Um, it's also uh, a matter, and, well, actually the same thing goes for the show trials and purges of the late 1930s when... Um, Stalin uh, uh, managed to, well, kill um, essentially, uh, well, uh, his own generation of Bolshevik uh, uh, leaders plus uh, several um, hundred thousand uh, others. But uh, uh, part of the kind of Moscow correspondence, Western Moscow, uh, Moscow correspondence cover-up was also that they and um, the wide-eyed fellow travellers uh, from the West, um, they were writing for readers in the UK, the US and Western Europe who really wanted Soviet socialism to work and who dreamed their dreams uh, vicariously. Uh, Western capitalism, as Kevin was saying, appeared to have failed. Um, its only saviour, the populist authoritarianism of uh, uh, fascism. So 
lefties in the West wanted the Soviet regime um, to succeed. Um, the Soviet Union was anti-fascist, at least until uh, 1939, and it seemed to have uh, positive stories to tell about socialist progress. Um, and a large part of the Western left and a large number of Western liberals um, wanted to hear the best about an alternative, even if the stories were propagandist lies. I'd like us to take a look at World War Two. At the beginning, the Soviet Union formed a non-aggression pact with Nazi Germany. This moment challenged many British communists. Then that pact fell apart in 1941, and the Soviet Union became an allied partner in the fight against Germany. Can you tell us about the impact the non-aggression pact had on the Communist Party, and then the later reaction to Russia changing sides in the war? For a decade of campaigning against fascism and opposing uh, appeasement, the Communist Party had won over some support, had some success uh, with the Labour left. There were figures like Cripps and Strachey and Galansk and the Left Book Club uh, that had been included into these campaigns um, and were in a romance of sorts with the Communist Party at the time. But, you know, the Communist Party was a dog on a leash, really. It, it was free to run through the 1930s in the, the anti-fascist park. Um, but uh, the moment came when the Soviet Union called the dog to heel and tugged it and uh, took it home to become a, a buddy with Hitler. The Molotov-Ribbentrop agreement in, in August 1939 and the... Uh, subsequent joint plunder of Poland by Germany and by the uh, Soviet Union really was a shocking event in the eyes of Communist Party members uh, of the and of the, uh, the 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 labor movement more generally in Britain. Um, the instruction came through from the Soviet Union that the war was in fact an imperialist war and to be opposed by communists in Britain and uh, Harry Pollitt, the leader at the time, uh, actually ignored this. He suppressed the instructions for uh, a short period of time um, but he was soon forced to stand down as indeed was the the editor of the Daily Worker uh, for as we know obedience to the Third International was a was an obligation of, of membership and of communist parties and to uh, give up on the fight against fascism was in fact the opposite of what many Communist Party members had signed up for. Uh, Labour's shock was intense at the uh, realisation that Russia and the Communist Party were leaving the battlefield. Uh, Conservatives never really expected anything else. But some Labour figures like Cripps gave the Soviet Union the benefit of the doubt, accepting the argument that uh, the Soviet Union needed time to to rearm. Um, but basically the Communist Party was instructed to defend a remote workers' state that uh, was not under attack at the time, uh, while not defending Holland, Norway, France, uh, and in fact, it even went uh, as far at many 
points t- as to suggest that that Britain was was uh, becoming fascist in its response to uh, the German threat and the way that it was organising the war. Uh, Labour gets Labour gets on with the fight against fascism. It enters Churchill's government, uh, engages in the war, uh, and of course then in 1941. The, uh, the 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 game is turned on its head. The Germans invade the Soviet Union, and uh, the message comes through from Moscow that uh, the war is an anti-fascist war and must be given the support of communists in Britain. Um, Communist Party, the the dog on the leash. Moscow gives it a tug, and uh, the party is now a leading agency in promoting the urgency of the war against the fascists and the production drive in the factories to produce munitions and, and urgent prosecution of the war and opening of a, a second front. It's, uh, uh, it wags its tail and membership booms. It reaches 56,000 by 1942, a high point, and it grows a little bit more after that. It's, uh, it's moment of peak popularity. It was genuinely helping to meet the uh, British needs of the time and frankly there wasn't much left by then of the original Bolshevik insurrectionary origins and and ideas of the the communist movements its aims uh, were becoming increasingly the same as those of the Labour Party but nevertheless it took its lead from Moscow Um, Communist Party carried on trying to affiliate to the Labour Party and the Labour Party continued to knock those requests back. Is there anything you'd like to add to that, Paul? Just a couple of things, I suppose. Uh, well, the first thing on the uh, the uh, Hitler-Stalin uh, pact uh, uh, in 1939, it wasn't something that lost the Communist Party uh, a great number of members, but it lost it all of its credibility uh, among, I suppose, thinking leftists. So. Um, the intellectuals, the Galances, the Strakies, um, and, and so forth, for, for them, 1939 was the end. And they never, ever trusted uh, the Communist Party ever again. Um, bizarrely, after 1941, you see uh, the Communist Party uh, 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 raking up uh, uh, support for its patriotism, for its uh, uh, siding with Uncle Joe Stalin and the Red Army's heroic uh, um, uh, defiance of Nazism in Eastern Europe. Um, and, um, well, that's the, uh, uh, that's the point that's uh, looked back on by communists ever after as the golden age of uh, um, the popular front, the anti-fascist popular front. Um, but Actually, it was all downhill from there. After World War II, the Western powers grew increasingly suspicious of the Soviet Union and tensions increased to breaking point in 1947, which saw the start of the Cold War, which lasted through until 1991. The Cold War saw many historic events from the building of the Berlin Wall, the war between North and South Korea, the United States and the Soviet arms race, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Prague Spring, the Vietnam War, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, as well as multiple spy scandals in the UK, Europe, USA, and Russia. And this is just to name a few events of the Cold War. (laughs) The Soviet Union was politically at odds with the West on almost every issue, 
issue. What happened, this is a big question, what happened to the Communist Party and the British left during the Cold War? That's what's called rather a big question. Um, and it's very difficult to give uh, a simple answer. Um, the Communist Party of Great Britain declined, uh, broadly speaking, from uh, the mid-1940s right the way through to the 1980s and, uh, well, hit terminal crisis in the uh, mid-1980s and gave up the ghost in 1991. Um, although, um, well, remnants of the tradition uh, organised in various minuscule uh, groups, um, the most important of them in the orthodox uh, communist uh, um, uh, tradition, uh, the Communist Party of Britain, not the same thing as the Communist Party of Great Britain, um, but uh, um, anyway, they, they survive, a um, very, very small number of, of uh, 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 people involved. Um, they've got the Morning Star, daily newspaper, um, various bureaucrats, uh, in some trade unions and their thinking, I suppose, if you can call it that, is um, influential um, on the wider left, um, uh, particularly when it comes down to uh, the role of American imperialism in the uh, modern world. Um, but the truth is that the Communist Party basically lost uh, from the 1940s right the way through uh, to its demise um, in terms of mobilising, um, well, younger uh, people. It was bypassed by the first big popular social movement of the Cold War, uh, the campaign for nuclear disarmament, the Aldermaston marches and all the rest of it, um, uh, really um, uh, was left behind by all of that. It had nothing whatsoever to say uh, about the 1960s uh, uh, student uh, 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 radicalism. Um, very little um, uh, to do uh, with um, feminism or with um, other kind of radical uh, 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 movements of the 70s and 80s, environmentalism and uh, so forth. The one place that um, it remained important uh, was the uh, trade unions where um, uh, uh, the Communist Party uh, industrial organisation retained uh, serious influence until well in the, into the uh, 1980s. And the remnants of that are uh, still there. Um, but uh, essentially uh, the story of the uh, Communist Party in the Cold War is one of failure after failure after failure. Kevin, is there anything you'd like to say on that? I think it would be worth pointing out that the yeah. uh, one of the assets of the Communist Party during this period of decolonization, mm. uh, the, the wind down of the, the British Empire, was the large uh, network of uh, uh, left nationalist leaders that had studied in London that the party had engaged with over uh, three or four decades actually and many of these were coming to prominence in independence movements that were going to be and indeed were empowered uh, by the by the Labour Party and subsequent governments in the post-war period and the Communist Party did play quite a leading role in uh, encouraging uh, independence movements campaigning for decolonization and this added to its credibility but many of the campaigns in which it was involved were of course articulated with 
Cold War struggles, they were nationalist movements that were in some cases proxy Cold War agencies in these uh, underdeveloped countries and the story was much more complicated than the liberating, emancipating theme that the the, the party managed to associate with itself through those decades. Many people during that time saw the Communist Party as a kind of vehicle of the Soviet intelligence services. Can we just talk a little bit about the Communist Party and espionage? That is the subject of uh, many, many uh, 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 books, um, and uh, um, it's quite difficult to give uh, a rounded um, answer. But, um, OK, there's no doubt whatsoever that um, the... Uh, uh, authorities in Moscow used the Communist Party of Great Britain um, in order essentially to uh, uh, pick up as many facts as uh, uh, possible about how to manufacture this or that um, um, uh, military uh, uh, hardware or uh, uh, what have you. In other words, industrial espionage, particularly in military areas um, or, or mili in the military sphere, uh, was something that the, uh, well, essentially that uh, um, the CPGB was, um, um, was doing um, um, from the 1920s uh, onwards. So Arcos, which was the uh, Soviet uh, co-op um, um, organisation which had a London office, was um, uh, busted for uh, spying. Um, there were various senior communists who were who were uh, uh, found to be uh, um, uh, snooping on the Woolwich Arsenal, and so it goes on. Um, of course, what most people think about um, with uh, uh, all of this, um, the uh, uh, espionage role, if you like, of, uh, of um, um, uh, communists in uh, Britain, is the Cambridge spies. <coughs> Philby, Burgess Maclean, and uh, uh, all of that. Um, where essentially um, um, they weren't uh, overt uh, Communist Party members, although um, 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 they were very definitely uh, uh, communists um, and uh, sympathetic to the communist cause, ended up in massively senior uh, uh, positions in uh, British intelligence and told their Soviet masters everything that they knew. Now, how important uh, uh, these characters were um, is a matter for uh, discussion. We still don't know everything there is to know. Um, um, I would say that post-1945, there's very little to suggest that um, the uh, 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 Soviet Union used the Communist Party for very much in the intelligence uh, uh, sphere. There's the example of Melita Norwood, um, Stalin's granny, as she was uh, uh, described, who was uh, revealed in, uh, I think, the early noughties, it's certainly, certainly relatively recently, uh, to have uh, handed over various uh, nuclear-related re uh, uh, secrets. But... Um, I think there are grounds for scepticism. Certainly, Moscow wanted as much info as it could get uh, about advanced military technologies in uh, the West. Um, in fact, it relied on uh, that sort of espionage. How much of it uh, uh, there was, we really still don't know. 
um, and um, how much it changed is, I think, still up for question. I think the last place that one would uh, place uh, a spy or a, a saboteur working for the Soviet Union uh, would be in the Communist Party of Great Britain. I mean, uh, first of all, they'd be rather easy to identify, very embarrassing, of course, when uh, party members were found, uh, like Melita Norwood, in sensitive jobs. Um, and the party had next to no significant political clout either. Um, members certainly were through the Cold War years excluded from teaching posts, civil mm. service posts, armed services roles. Um, their, their, their access to useful knowledge was was rather limited. I think the Cambridge spies are a, a different thing altogether. I mean in, they, they were recruited at the high point of, of anti-fascism and, and, and as I've said before really I think the Communist Party never really understood fascism or how it could and needed to be resisted but the the Cambridge supplies did dedicate their their lives their covert lives um, to supporting the Soviet Union against what they thought were um, uh, forces in the the British establishment that uh, were not confronting fascism effectively and uh, it seems to me that uh, they were wrong um, you know the Philbys, McLean, Burgess, Blunt and the others uh, were feeding a, a dictatorship with information that uh, weakened Western Europe in the name of anti-fascism that was uh, a threat that the Soviet Union contributed to the strengthening of more than anybody else it must have been a terrible moment for them when the non-aggression pact was signed and they uh, uh, saw that the the purposes of the sacrifices they had made had uh, disappeared from the historical scene but uh, at the same time uh, you know the Soviet Union made the the largest largest sacrifice in the Second World War when the head-to-head -head confrontation with fascism in Europe uh, took real form and was prosecuted to the end and I think that the anti-fascist moment was probably the motivation for the Cambridge spies for many people that joined in the 1930s and stayed through to the the, the bitter end of the Communist Party they saw it as a an anti-fascist force whereas in fact its uh, actual contribution on that front <laughs> is, uh, was a, a very mixed uh, bag indeed. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. 1991 saw the fall of the Soviet Union and a Russian-sized vacuum for communists worldwide. What was this time like for the British Communist Party? Paul and I were both... Um, kind yeah. of uh, quite active and involved at this point. I mean, uh, I suppose the opening notes are sounded when Gorbachev becomes General Secretary of a, a weakening Soviet Union in the mid-1980s, 1985, and uh, initiates a period of glasnost, perestroika, openness, restructuring, um, and a whole series of, of reforms and uh, possible democratizations that were welcomed by the... Uh, 
the Euro communists, the uh, reformist communists in in Britain, and by many people on the centre left, and in, and indeed the the right of British politics, it was uh, a new thaw. Uh, it could have been people thought that the huge Soviet monolith might turn into something more social democratic, more open, more transformational, uh, perhaps to to uh, pick pick up some of its uh, former tarnished uh, kind of vanguard glory and, and, and move into a, a new era. The, the Euro communists were, were very excited, Labour was too, but it came too late to save the fortunes of the Communist Party of Great Britain, which was very small, arguing with itself at this time, shrinking in numbers, uh, and in many cases very little different to the... Uh, <clears throat> the Labour Party. It was uh, not a shot in the arm for them in terms of membership. Uh, the magazine of the period, Marxism Today, uh, possibly it was a shot in terms of influence. I remember talking to Labour policymakers who used to tell me that they used to read Marxism Today before they went into their <laughs> Kinnockite working groups to to uh, shape the future of the Labour Party. So they had they had influence, but uh, the the numbers behind them were diminishing. Um, of course, it's not long after these years that the, uh, there's a coup attempt in the Soviet Union. Um, and then, of course, in Poland, multi-party elections take place. Hungary opens its border. East Germans flood into Hungary. The Berlin Wall opens up. And, and the, the fortresses of, of, of Eastern Europe uh, begin to fall. And uh, this is the end of the, the Soviet Union as we'd known it and as we've been, been talking about it in this discussion. And really, by then, the, uh, the uh, individuals remaining in the Communist Party really know the, the, the game is up. Uh, they're, a warring, they're a warring splinter of, of what they used to be. Uh, and in 1991, I think it was, the uh, non-Leninist uh, movement democratic left was was set up and becomes the uh, the uh, the legacy um, of the communist party and uh, has the residue of the moscow gold in its coffers and mm -hmm. reclaims buildings from well-funded regional organizations lots of legal battles to uh, to get the assets back into the the legal um inheritor of the communist party's wealth uh, do dominate actually quite a lot of what's going on in democratic left at the time. Paul and I are, are both working there on its newspaper New Times uh, within seven or eight years of the the uh, organisation being set up. Um, democratic left of course only lasts, uh, doesn't last 10 years um, and it passes its assets uh, across to Charter 88 and, and then to a uh, electoral reform organisation really called unlocking democracy it it had tried to do something new it had uh, democratic left had tried to network campaigns it had uh, campaigned very strongly on fair voting and electoral reform and it had quite a good uh, network and initiative called unions 21 which was trying to renew and strengthen uh, trade unionism in in the period um, but really it was shrinking for nearly all uh, shrinking year on year from the the day that it was set up the um, the Stalinists in the Communist Party that it had defeated never never gave up uh, 
defeated Stalinists never do really give up. And uh, a number of organisations, um, the uh, the New Communist Party, uh, straight left becomes uh, the Communist Party of Britain, I think, the Morning Star endures. But um, these are fragments, they're tiny, they're like those that the party was original originally assembled from the the wheel had turned full circle we have a a number of rather ill-fitting fragments jostling um uh around what was left of the communist party of great britain by the end of the 1990s it was uh, nearly game over and um good riddance too many people thought but then of course along came jeremy corbyn's labor party and uh, the story changed once again. In 2001, we saw the beginning of the war on terror after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. The USA and NATO first invaded Afghanistan in 2002. And then in 2003, the USA with the UK and a much smaller alliance controversially invaded Iraq. Both events have rocked the world order and we've seen a rise in terrorism partly as a consequence of these events. We've also had the great financial crisis of 2007-2008 which has led to mass unemployment and great misery for many through the austerity measures in the UK and Europe. We have also seen a vote for the UK to leave the European Union and in the USA we've seen the controversial election of Donald Trump as President of the United States. We also saw a Labour government that won a landslide in 1997 and then it grew deeply unpopular and led to them losing the general election of 2010. Another big question, what is the state of communism in the British left today? That's a very interesting question. We're living in a very, very weird world. Um, I suppose I'd make three points. Uh, um, The first is that, well, economic crisis uh, rarely propels the electorate to the left. And in Britain, uh, the left has not made, or never made, uh, its take on the late noughties crash uh, in 2008, uh, the common sense of the day. Um, and it hasn't, uh, well, basically the left hasn't made its analysis, if you like, the common sense of the day anywhere, except perhaps for uh, uh, Portugal. Um, so although we're living in uh, um, difficult times economically throughout the, uh, 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 throughout the world, really, um, the left hasn't been the beneficiary of, of uh, capitalist uh, uh, failure. Um, the second point I suppose I'd make um, is that uh, 9-11 and its uh, aftermath, um, the Afghanistan and Iraq uh, wars and uh, so forth, um, had and, well, continue to have um, a quite ambiguous impact on politics uh, in the uh, developed Western world. On one hand, um, it's led to a revival of sorts of an anti-imperialist or, well, actually anti-American leftism that owes quite a lot to uh, Cold War uh, communist thinking. Um, And, well, I think the rise of Jeremy Corbyn uh, is very much part of that. On the other hand, um, the post-9-11 world has seen a growth of anti-foreigner nationalism, um, which um, rather more important, it seems to me, um, or rather more prevalent um, than anti-Americanism. Um, hence Brexit, uh, uh, Donald Trump. 
and uh, an awful lot uh, more. The third point, I suppose, is that, well, um, okay, despite the way that a lot of um, the left in the West has taken on the ideas of Cold War era communist anti-Americanism, there's not really been a significant growth in support for um, the parties that claim the the mantle of Lenin's Bolsheviks in Britain or uh, anywhere else. I mean, here the Communist Party of Britain, um, 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 the Socialist Workers' Party and all the rest, are their microscopic sects, as, uh, as Kevin uh, was saying, just as they were microscopic uh, sects 20 years ago. Um, and elsewhere in Western Europe, the mass communist parties that were, well, quite normal in the 60s and 70s and uh, 80s in France, Italy, in Spain, are a thing of the past. Um, communism today is very much a Southeast Asian thing. It's uh, uh, China, Vietnam, uh, North Korea. I think that it's true to say that uh, leading figures in the Labour Party today have forgotten what Labour once knew, which is that Bolshevism is a a poisoned well, um, that it produces the opposite of what it promises, and and that it has never had uh, the support of a a large percentage of the the British people. Um, It leads to something dictatorial and uh, top-down and statist and authoritarian in form, rather than uh, anything that one would call socialism today uh, with uh, democratic content. Now, I'm not saying it would be ridiculous to say that the uh, the, uh, the Labour Party uh, that we have today is, is Bolshevik. That's not the case. But it is the air that many of its leading figures uh, breathed when they first came into politics. And there are figures like Andrew Murray and Seamus Milne that uh, are actually uh, a direct intake from the Communist Party and, and Bolshevik micro tradition in in English politics. And then in addition to that, uh, figures like Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott and John McDonnell, uh, these are people that uh, Paul and I have known or known of or written about for for many years they they come from the labor left of the 1970s the the benite left which very much was dependent on the communist party's trade union machine for organizational sinews for resources uh, and indeed for for ideas about policy um, and they also come from a milieu in which the modern Bolshevisms, Trotskyist strains, uh, were blooming in and around the Labour Party of the time. And I think these have had a huge effect on their thinking, their political concepts, their ideas of campaigning uh, and and strategy. And I think that the main effect of that is that they're actually not comfortable with a lot of the things that we do need Labour leaderships to be comfortable with. So they're not comfortable with the language of reform. Uh, They're not comfortable with the language of 
mixed economy. They're certainly not comfortable uh, with the language of uh, Americanism uh, or, or of international military alliances uh, and, and let alone interventions. I mean, a, a President Trump chimes much more closely with their notions of international politics than a reforming Obama that also has obligations in terms of policing the world and, and managing a uh, kind of balance of, of, of armaments. Uh, it's, it's something that they were never schooled in, it's the old phrase, they, they come from an oppositional left uh, and the uh, modern Bolshevik tradition was, was very close to the pulse of that oppositional left and I think that the long-standing Bolshevik critique of Labour actually fuels a lot of their hesitations, uh, their difficulties to adjust to reform and the actually existing electoral opportunities that uh, the leadership is now gradually adjusting to but possibly too little too late. Um, I was very much part of, of, of that left tradition back in the 70s and, and through the 80s and I, I worked alongside a number of these these people quite closely and I'm, I'm afraid I can I can smell the Leninist tradition on their breath uh, and I think that Labour has forgotten um, what it learnt uh, during the 80 years or so that followed the uh, the Bolshevik revolution and we're now finding ourselves in a situation where we have regular um, repetitions almost of the <laughs> non-aggression pact uh, from the beginning of the Second World War. I, I, I think some of the ridiculous positions that people have talked themselves into over Syria, over the Ukraine, over the Crimea, over, over Putin um, and before that uh, you know with Gaddafi and and with Saddam um, show that there is a, a kind of legacy and a set of political parameters that have been that are anachronistic and that have been brought into the period in which we now live and they they are antiques from that that Bolshevik period and and that is that is a a concern to me that the the culture and the thinking and the approach to global politics is permeated by the the tradition that Labour uh, used to keep very much at arm's length, um, but now has uh, sitting around the shadow cabinet table. Uh, a bit of a footnote to what Kevin was just saying. Um, <coughs> it seems to me that the the uh, 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 the core of Leninism um, that uh, Corbyn and his part of the Labour left, which is by no means the whole of the Labour left, has uh, 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 taken on. Um, is um, a rather crude anti-Americanism. It's uh, uh, um, uh, 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 an anti you know, an anti-imperialist uh, uh, anti-Americanism, um, which has led them into all sorts of very unsavoury international kind of alliances and uh, friendships. In particular, supporting anti-American dictators in the uh, Middle East, so um, uh, uh, Saddam, Assad, 
etc 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 but also um, uh, into uh, um, you know rose tinted spectacles when looking at Venezuela um, pro Cubanism mm. all of these things and that is it's a kind of it's almost a knee jerk kind of leftist kind of uh, um, anti Americanism that that runs all the way through the Corbyn uh, 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 the Corbyn uh, uh, Labour left. And that is something that I think is, well, one, idiotic, um, but two, wrong. Um, beyond that, though, uh, in terms of you know, the actual influence of the Communist Party, um, well, OK, we've explained uh, uh, already that the Communist Party of Great Britain, the official Communist Party, ceased to exist in 1991. Um, so the uh, main uh, uh, Communist Party today is the Communist Party of uh, Britain, which uh, controls the Morning Star newspaper. Um, um, but there's no formal um, relationship at all with the uh, Labour Party. What you're looking at is a number of people who have pasts in the Communist Party of Britain holding roles in affiliated trade unions, trade unions that are affiliated to the Labour Party. Um, and that is pretty much it. Otherwise, we're looking at a broader intellectual influence, a mindset, all those sorts of things, which I think, well, OK, talked about uh, um, uh, already. Um, I'm worried not about entryism or anything like that, although there's certainly been a certain amount of that from Trotskyists and other Leninists in um, the Labour Party over the last uh, uh, couple of years, but more the influence of a rather idiotic worldview, um, which frankly was wrong and out of date in 1939 when uh, um, uh, Molotov signed the pact with Ribbentrop and hasn't got any more um, um, uh, up to date if you like um, in the last uh, 75 years. In some far left and anti-capitalist circles today there is a growing rosy-eyed revisionism of the legacy of Soviet Russia and other communist countries. What, in your view, is the legacy of Karl Marx and communism today? Was it a force for good that just went bad, or will Marxism always lead to totalitarian states? Or is there something positive we can take from Marx without having to become full-blown communists? I think it's a big mistake to blame Marx for communist totalitarianism um, uh, uh, as a starting point. Um, there are, nevertheless, undoubtedly, authoritarian elements in Marx's thinking. Um, uh, and there's also plenty that Marx got wrong about how capitalism would develop, as well as plenty of blind spots. Marx doesn't have anything to say about sex. Um, he doesn't have anything to say about bureaucracy. He doesn't have an awful lot to say about, um, um, really, about technology. Despite all of the he's a 19th century thinker, um, despite all of the failings which you would expect from anyone, I don't think that uh, uh, um, you know, Marx is any more fallible necessarily than John Stuart Mill or uh, um, uh, any uh, uh, contemporary or Darwin. 
Um, but okay, there are lots of insights too. Um, you know, I wouldn't describe myself as a Marxist, but it's perfectly possible to be a Marxist, democratic socialist and libertarian. And I know plenty of people who are just that. I don't think that Marxism leads to uh, dictatorship, but at the same time, uh, well, the seeds of it are undoubtedly there in the master's thoughts. I think I take a slightly different view on this. I mean, I, I think that uh, Marx provides a very useful, if 19th century, analysis of, of capitalism. Um, and I also think he provides ways of thinking about the capacities and uh, dynamics of the, the forces that might modify or, or transcend capitalism at some point. But the, the left is, is bigger than Marx. Um, uh, even though he's he's still useful, I think that the real threat has always been that that uh, poisonous mix of of Marxism, Leninism that no doubt uh, has had the uh, the legacy of dictatorship that that uh, people have been referring to. I look at the left in a different way. I think there was a very important left that predates the uh, Bolshevik tradition and Marxism-Leninism, and it postdates it too. I think there's always been a, a uh, healthy non-Leninist left in British politics. Um, if I tried to track it, it would be from somewhere back in the William Morris and then the uh, independent Labour Party, of which the young J.B. Priestley was a member, rolling forward to, to Orwell, to some of the... Uh, socialist initiatives in the Second World War like Commonwealth to the emergence of the new left to the Labour left to the Tribune left the soft left and to a lot of independent initiatives that have happened in and around the party uh, beyond the fragments the social movements that followed on from that and I think that although that's a very diverse bunch uh, with a very diverse mix of attitudes to Marx on top of everything else um, there are some common themes. It's non-statist, it talks about alternative plans and popular control and ethical socialism and gender equalities and popular planning and being in and against the state. Uh, and culturally, it's uh, often significantly libertarian. It predates the Communist Party and it post-dates it. Uh, and its self-financing, which of course we could never say about the Communist Party tradition. And uh, I think it's a, a real alternative to the, uh, the Bolshevik import and to the uh, traditional narrow parliamentarism of the Labour Party. Paul and Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? I mean, the easiest thing to do is to, um, well, catch up on us uh, on Art Press, which is a, a small press where um, uh, we're um, publishing. Um, ARG has got four A's. Um, uh, R-G-H exclamation mark. That's not our credit um, rating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, you can get uh, 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 books uh, and e-books uh, online uh, via Amazon. Oh no, I'm uh, uh, doing a, a commercial for a, a giant uh, multinational corporation. I, I think it would be fair to say, and Paul should say this for himself really, you know, that these arguments take a different form when you look at... Uh, China and uh, and Britain, but yeah. there's a whole parallel story to tell there, and 
Paul's working on a on a book on um, uh, Mao Maoism, the British left, which looks at a a kind of parallel, if you like, set of pressures on left thinking in the United Kingdom. I'm I'm a bit more stuck in the past. I've been working on. Uh, I've just completed a book for ARG, which, amongst other things, looks at those uh, movements immediately after the first world war in the context of a very small town in Kent, Whitstable, um, and I'm following that with something that looks at fascism and war and radio mm-hmm. and why socialists followed Mosley from the Labour Party through the new party mm-hmm. and into uh, British fascism. Um, these big questions never go away, you know. Um, they're they're here to stay and someone's got to carry on writing about them and that's what we are doing Excellent, well hopefully I can get you back on at some point (laughs) to talk about Mao and all that sort of thing, we'd definitely (laughs) love to do some future episodes on this topic Thank you guys so much for your thoughts today and chatting with me and taking the time Really enjoyed the show, Uh, thank you Well thank you Yes, it's been very interesting Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening.